Thursdays podcast. My name is Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And this is a special episode in remembrance of Juneteenth. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Juneteenth, it is a holiday in remembrance of the end of slavery in the United States. Most people would be surprised to find out that even though the 13th Amendment was passed in January of 1865, it wouldn't be until June 19th that uh, Union soldiers would actually make it to Texas. A man named uh, Major General Gordon Granger would arrive in Galveston, Texas to inform the remaining enslaved people who had not yet been told that they were now free. The Civil War was over. Today, uh, we decided to cover a case uh, from American slavery. Uh, We are going to be telling you about the Nat Turner Rebellion. Jasmine and I met working at a historic site in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and we both discussed the institution of slavery with the public. And it didn't always go smoothly. It's remarkable how resistant people in 2020 are to talking about this topic. Jasmine, do you have a specific instance that you can recall getting pushed back from the public? There are so many. um, It's hard to pick just one. But I think the most powerful example that I can give everyone today is the question that I got asked the most. And that would be, well, were they good slave owners? And the answer to that question is always no. Um, I want to set this up by saying that slavery is always violence, always. You cannot have slavery that exists without the presence of violence, whether that is physical, mental, or usually both. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, slavery does not exist without at least the threat of violence. And more often than not, it is physical and uh, psychological breaking down the psyche of the of the person to prevent future quell future rebellions which that is actually quite relevant in this case you'll see the aftermath uh there's some passages some literary literacy laws that we'll get into um that are essentially meant to to keep people from from knowing any better you know so uh and that's what makes it especially important for us to to recount a tale a, a story from slavery Uh, A warning for our listeners, Uh, the topics we're discussing today are graphic in nature. This would not be suitable for anyone who is sensitive to descriptions of violent scenes. So we have gone through a lot of effort to make sure that we are bringing you the most accurate version of events. And in doing so, we have compiled a lot of different sources for this episode, some uh, primary sources or from the time period that we're talking about, such as Nat Turner's Confessions, written by Thomas Gray, a man who was supposedly Nat Turner's lawyer. And we're going to get into that. There's a little bit of controversy over it. And we've also brought it all the way up to 2016 with Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation portrayal of Nat Turner's life, as well as the rebellion. So we're going to read you the opening line of Thomas Gray's Confessions of Nat Turner. It is as follows. Sir, you have asked me to give a history of the motives which induced me to undertake the late insurrection, as you call it. To do so, I must go back to the days of my infancy, and even before I was born. Nat here would go on to explain how his family, and later community, believed him to be a prophet, 
But we want to use this to take us all back to what happened before the confessions, before the rebellion, and even before Nat was born. Slavery begins officially in what would become the United States in 1619 when a Dutch vessel known as the White Lion, carrying 20 to 30 Africans, arrives at the colony of Jamestown, Virginia. If you want to know more about this, the 1619 podcast and the 1619 project will help you grasp a deeper understanding of what is going on in this time period. But by 1810, enslaved people made up 40% of the population in the state of Virginia, and specifically Southampton County, there were more enslaved people than there were white people by the time that we're looking at, which is the early 1800s. Southampton County, Virginia is where Nat Turner would be born in roughly 1800 and where these events would take place. But I want to go back further to the 1780s and 1790s. Uh, An anti-slavery Baptist preacher named David Barrow was leading the charge for abolitionist sentiment in Southampton County. And Nat's parents would have been around for this. In 1790, Barrow was among the delegates in attendance when the General Committee of the Baptist Associations passed a resolution that called slavery, quote, a violent deprivation of the rights of nature and urged Baptists to use every legal measure to extirpate the horrid evil from the land. We know this had very little effect, unfortunately, because the number of enslaved people, not just in Virginia, but throughout the United States, would continue to rise until numbers totaled around 4 million people by the end of the Civil War in 1865. Now, reports from this say that Barrow got three families to release enslaved people in Southampton County, but... Again, this is considered mostly a failed movement, but would set the stage for later talks of anti-slavery and abolition in this area. So where is Nat at this time? As as Jasmine mentioned, he was born roughly around 1800. We don't know for sure. But he was born on a plantation belonging to Benjamin Turner. Uh, This is the family for whom Nat would be named in the years after the rebellion. Uh, He's listed on the census as Nat Benjamin Turner in roughly 1800. Uh, By that time, Southampton County has mostly enslaved people. They have more enslaved people than white people, actually. The number there is 7,756 enslaved people and 6,573 white people. And now in 1810, Benjamin Turner died and left everything to his son, Samuel. Nat would have been about 10 years old at this point. Before we get into any more of Nat Turner's story, a lot of research done either by us or by other historians are based on the confessions of Nat Turner written by Thomas Gray, that pamphlet I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And it's important to note who Thomas Gray was. He was a lawyer, a slave owner himself. And because of that, a lot of question has been brought up when it comes to this document. First and foremost, is it accurate? A lot of people accuse Gray of having an agenda with 
his printing of this. He made money off of this. And so we have to take it with a pretty big grain of salt as we read through it. This is all too common when it comes to stories of people who were enslaved. Nat Turner was literate. He could read and write, as we're going to talk about later on in this episode. But he never kept a record of his own life that survived, at least. And so we are reliant on a secondhand source. In Nat's confessions, he says that he could see things from before he was born, He was having visions and declared a prophet in his community. He claims not to remember learning the alphabet and shocking his enslavers when he was able to write out words and names. He also said he paid attention when the children were at their lessons so he could pick up any education possible. And education really is the key here, as we will learn. He believed that he had a bigger purpose on this earth. And as it would turn out, he definitely did. Nat Turner actually runs away around 1820, and he's successful for 30 days. Now, this is quite a feat, considering there would have been slave catchers on the loose trying to hunt him down. Uh, But he says he has a vision prompting him to come back to the plantation. His fellow enslaved were baffled at his return. Nat Turner begins performing baptisms for his fellow enslaved. White slave owners were using teachings from the Bible to reinforce servitude among their enslaved, but Nat Turner began to interpret these same teachings as calls for slaves to rise up and emancipate themselves. Nat Turner witnesses an eclipse on February 12th, 1831, and he interprets this as the sign he's been waiting for. He starts to gather support. He starts to make plans. And it's actually believed that Nat used songs to send messages to other enslaved people. Initially, the plan was to start the rebellion on Independence Day, a.k.a. July 4th. However, he had fallen ill and was unable to lead, so they had to wait. Ultimately, the rebellion would start on August 21st. He had gathered the support of a small group of trusted fellow enslaved people. Uh, The reason for this is Nat was educated. He was aware of other slave rebellions that had failed. And it was noted that most of these slave rebellions failed because word got out. So Nat's main objective was secrecy to avoid detection. He had to keep his initial group as small as possible, about six men. Now, as you'll see, the group will grow to about 70 enslaved individuals when it's all said and done. Now, Turner actually had his men, most of whom he recruited along the way, drill as soldiers during the first night. And this is, I think this is very interesting. It speaks to his cunningness as a leader. He was playing the long game. He was training them to go to war. He was planning to take them to war. Now, I have a quote here from Nat Turner's confessions, uh, Mr. Gray's confessions. Since the commencement of 1830, I had been living with Mr. Joseph Travis, who was to me a kind master and placed the greatest confidence in me. In fact, I had no cause to complain of his treatment of me. Now, this is a pretty interesting statement because immediately following this, he goes into the murder of the Travis family. You can interpret this however you would like, but I think this speaks to the fact that kindness in this situation 
was irrelevant. The violence that Nat Turner and his his band of men perpetuated was about striking fear into the hearts of the slave-owning class to start an anti-slavery movement. Now, the fact that Nat Turner described his master, his enslaver, as kind would have left slave-owning Virginians feeling particularly vulnerable, simply because had Travis been a brutal and cruel master, it probably would have been understandable. But Nat himself said this man was fair. If that's true, in the eyes of many, it meant that every white slave owner was at risk, benevolent, quote-unquote, benevolent or not. This speaks to a deeper motive and meaning behind the rebellion, which would have been terrifying to slave owners. Nat and his band of men armed themselves with quiet weapons, axes, hammers, hoes, all because secrecy was their main objective. And they would go from plantation to plantation, 11 in total, and they would spare no one, not sparing anyone because of, of, of gender or age. That means the men, women, and children were all going to be prey during this this gory rebellion. I think it's important to note as well that we know the names of every single man, woman, and child that was killed. Well, I should say every white man, woman, and child that was killed in this rebellion. However, we don't know the names of every single person who was involved on the other side of this. We know Nat, and we know the four people he lists in his confession. Will, Henry, Hark, Nelson, and Sam. In the confessions, Nat Turner says that he only is involved in one killing. And this is allegedly, remember, this is Gray's words, and we have no way to verify the truth of all of this. But Nat Turner reportedly says that he kills one person, Margaret Whitehead. And most of the violence perpetrated by Nat Turner during the rebellion only results in injury of white people. For example, the first instance that he brings up um, being his enslaver, Joseph Travis, Nat reports that he hits him with a hatchet, but it doesn't kill him. And it's Will, his confidant, his right-hand man in this, that delivers the death blow. And this description happens several times throughout these confessions. This is because he's not a great fighter, but his leadership and oratory skills is what makes the rebellion happen. Their goal was to descend on the county seat at Jerusalem and raid the armory there. But because the alarm was sounded throughout the countryside, they would not be successful in this endeavor. Following the rebellion, Nat goes into hiding in the woods for six weeks, though he stays near his community even as serious, serious retribution is being handed down by white slave owners. Most southern states didn't have police, per se, and instead relied on patrolling militia groups of local white men. Hundreds of militia members flooded the area to hunt down Nat and his fellow conspirators. Now I'm going to read you the description on Nat's wanted poster, and this is as close of a description to Nat's physical stature that we have. This is pretty much all we have describing his, what he looked like. Five feet, six or eight inches high, 
weighs between 150 and 160 pounds. Rather bright or light-colored complexion, but not a mulatto or mixed race. Broad shoulders, larger flat nose, large eyes, broad flat feet, rather knock-kneed, walks brisk and active, hair on the top of the head very thin, no beard except on the upper lip and on the top of the chin, a scar on one of his temples, also one on the back of his neck, a large knot on one of the bones of his right arm near the wrist produced by a blow. I think it's really interesting that they specify that he is not mulatto. So taking any quote unquote whiteness away from him, because of course that term was applied to different enslaved people to make them seem quote unquote more civilized because to be white was to be civilized and to be black was to be uncivilized. And so they're taking his humanity away from him almost in this description. Yeah, exactly. Now, somewhere between 50 and 65 white people were killed during the two-day rebellion led by Nat Turner. And as I mentioned before, a total of 11 plantations were hit. The toll on Black lives, both enslaved and free, across the country is unknown, but the estimate is pretty grave. The execution of enslaved people related to the rebellion was relatively restrained due to Virginia law requiring financial reimbursement for the loss of enslaved individuals. Therefore, many enslaved people were charged fines that they could never hope to satisfy or sold rather than executed. Free people of color, however, were killed in great numbers. The state of Virginia executed 56 people they believed to have been involved in the rebellion. And those militia groups Maggie mentioned earlier killed anywhere from 100 to 120 people more that they had said were involved. And the true numbers on that are really hard to know. These are just estimates. And also, this is important to know, this was just in Southampton County. Murders of free black people spiked everywhere in the aftermath of the rebellion. And white people, in particular enslavers, grew even more scared than they had ever been before. Part of this was due to rumors that the rebellion had not stopped and was traveling south. Violent spectacles of medieval justice occurred, including decapitating slaves and free black people and putting their heads on pikes and parading them around the countryside in an effort to terrify slaves into submission. This massively violent response was meant to quell any future thoughts of rebellion among slaves. According to Thomas Gray's Confessions of Nat Turner, Nat was caught by a man named Benjamin Pipps after about six weeks in hiding. Nat was tried for conspiring to rebel and sentenced to death, and his wife was sold south. This is the the quote that Gray ends with. It reads as follows. I shall not attempt to describe the effect of this narrative as told and commented on by myself in the condemned whole of the prison. The calm, deliberate composure with which he spoke of his late deeds and intentions, the expression of his fiend-like face when excited by enthusiasm, still bearing the stains of the blood of helpless innocence about him, clothed with rags and covered with chains, yet daring to raise his manacled hands to heaven, with a spirit soaring above the attributes of man. I looked on him, 
and my blood curdled in my veins. This is further further evidence of the sensationalism around this case and why so many historians are quick to criticize this account because Gray is feeding off of that sensationalism and also, again, he stood to profit off of this story. Yeah, this is sounds like he's trying to sell pamphlets is what it sounds like. And as a slave owner himself, he would have likely sided with the people who are condemning Nat to death. He's going to have the opinion that many enslavers had at that point, which is this was a crime. This was a horrendous act of violence that they need to stop this from happening in the future. And that last sentence you read, the blood curdling in his veins, really goes to show that. Yeah, he's saying that he's terrified of this man. Nat was reportedly hanged. His body flayed and beheaded and then buried in an unmarked grave. There were also reports that his body was donated to be dissected. Following Nat Turner's rebellion, new legislation regarding what enslaved people could and could not do is passed, making life even more difficult for those in bondage. Virginia law decrees a white person must be present during black religious services. New literacy laws crop up to prevent the education of enslaved black people and many other southern states follow suit. In fact, the only two states by the outbreak of the Civil War that would not have literacy laws were Maryland and Kentucky. The rebellion even sparked debate among Virginians about abolishing slavery to prevent future bloodshed. The state legislature even came to a vote on the issue, but abolition was ultimately struck down. It's argued that this sparks abolitionist sentiments in western Virginia. And a fun fact, Virginia will actually split in two. West Virginia will will become its own state during the Civil War, so they don't have to fight for the Confederacy. Nat Turner has been a much debated figure in history, basically along the lines of was he a freedom fighter or was he a fanatic? So is this rebellion justified or is it not? And I think to get into the answer here, we have to, well, look at the system he was living in. We've heard, especially lately, the term violence begets violence. I think that's what we're seeing here. Nat Turner grew up in a violent environment. His parents grew up in a violent environment. As I stated earlier, slavery is violence. Slavery does not exist without violence. And so if anyone had wanted to change their life, remove themselves from enslavement, as Nat had said, he was destined for greater things. How would they do it in an environment such as that without also being violent? Could Nat walk up to his enslaver and demand freedom? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, American history is violent. Now, with that being said, change does not have to be violent. But when the only examples of change are through those types of actions, it makes sense that people would follow that lead. Nat Turner believed that he was starting a revolution. Revolutions are are violent. Revolutions are bloody. And though we don't condone violence in the situation of slavery in the United States, slavery wouldn't end until after a four-year war that resulted in 600,000 deaths. So in the case of Nat Turner, did he have another option? I don't think so. 
It is often said that this was the only rebellion of its kind in the 19th century. In fact, Gray opens up his statement with that claim exactly. However, there are other kinds of rebellion, such as slowing down work, breaking tools, running away, or the better term, self-emancipation. All of these are very valid. All of them are very often not recorded or recorded infrequently. And they all were very likely to end in violence against the protester. Absolutely. In the case of of breaking tools, in the case of willfully slowing down work, uh, you could, uh, you know, have the removal of limbs, maiming, whipping. The, essentially, when you think of violence and slavery, these are all tactics that are going to be used to keep people in line. And I think this drives home what we said in the beginning, that the institution of slavery cannot exist without violence. Because how else are you going to get someone to do what you want them to do against their will? In his confessions, Thomas Gray records that he asks a question. And the question was, do you not find yourself mistaken now? Nat Turner responds to the question, was not Christ crucified? And I just think there's something so powerful in that, even sitting in a jail cell, wrapped in chains, knowing that he's facing death and possibly worse before that even happens. You know, I want to I want to bring up something here, something that that really got the old noggin going. And that is Nat Turner hid out in the woods for six weeks and one guy stumbles upon him. In that moment, Nat Turner could have acted in in many different ways. Right. He could have attempted to flee. I mean, obviously, like being shot probably was preferable to being hung and disemboweled and quartered. But I think that Nat Turner was trying to make a point. I think that he, in that moment, decided, and I, you know, I'm not trying to speak for someone of the past, but this statement, was Christ not crucified, he believed himself he was going to be a martyr. And I, I really think he was. These men started out in this violent rebellion vastly outnumbered, vastly outgunned. They had very little hope of success, but they knew that. You didn't pick up an axe, you didn't pick up a hammer and go from plantation to plantation without assuming that the worst could happen. And they did it anyway. They did it to make a point. I, yeah, I think so. They were doing that to make a point. So we can't talk about the legacy of Nat Turner without talking about some of the more modern portrayals. Absolutely. And perhaps the most recent portrayal of the Nat Turner Rebellion uh, was the, the 2016 Nate Parker film, The Birth of a Nation. It takes the name of one of the really most famous early American films that portrayed Klansmen saving white women from being raped by African-American former slaves former enslaved, uh, but it turns it on its head and it, it tells the story of Nat Turner as being a crusader, as a man who had had enough. And he, you know, how, how many times can a man get beaten down before he fights back? It's essentially how the birth of a nation portrayed him. The review that the New Yorker gave it, that scathing review was pretty interesting. Uh, it talks a lot about how that film uses the women 
as the catalyst moment for the men in the film to act. And so The Birth of a Nation got, took a lot of heat, especially from The New Yorker. Yeah, and I agree with some of the things that The New Yorker brought up. Um, certainly the portrayal of the rebellion itself, which only showed men. And by many accounts, women and even children were reportedly seen within the group that was um, rebelling. So I think that to leave them out of that part of the story takes away from the power that this group had. It wasn't just that the people most affected by this and most outraged by this were the men that were enslaved, but the women and even some of the younger people in that community as well. So I think that was an important thing that the movie left out on. Now, Nat Turner doesn't speak of that in his own confessions. He does only bring up the men. But, I don't know, something just felt wrong about not including women in that that turn, in that Something felt wrong about not including women in the portrayal of the story as well. Well, they were just there as victims of sexual assault. It's like, basically, that's that was the jumping off point, the tipping point for Nat Turner. I think there was so much more to it than just that. Obviously, violence against women. I mean, as uh, just trying to, you know put myself in a position of just like walking a mile in someone's shoes. It's, it's it's impossible for me to imagine what that would have been like. But, you know, for a married couple, a married enslaved couple, you know, they, they have they have no protections under the law. And you know, lots and lots of stories of, of uh, enslaved women uh, being victims of sexual violence. But I think Nat Turner's rebellion was about more than just that. And the birth of a nation, I don't know, it just sort of really puts the violence against women as kind of the main the main motivation for Nat Turner. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. And I think his motivations were so much more than that. Certainly, it's something he would have witnessed um, being on various different plantations. But I think, like he, he says himself, and I've said about three other times during this podcast is he believed that he was destined for greater things and he wanted to do better things than what his, well, what society was telling him he could do. And that wasn't just to be a savior of women. It was to try and incite at minimum a conversation at most a revolution to do with all people who were enslaved. And one last thing I'd like to add to that is with everything we've said about criticizing the movie, I do want to point out that it is the right step for Hollywood and for movie makers to be making as far as telling these stories that have not been told. And I think that was part of Nate Parker's point is he's reclaiming the name Birth of a Nation from the KKK movie that I'm sure most people are familiar with, at least. And he's trying to tell the story of, well, people who would not have had their stories told traditionally. So I think for that, it is very positive and definitely worth watching and maybe making your own mind up about it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's another modern portrayal of Nat Turner's Rebellion, and it's actually a novel 
published in 1967. So this would have been at the height of the civil rights movement. Uh, An author named William Styron, and he called his novel The Confessions of Nat Turner, which is the same title as William Gray's Confessions, uh, supposedly recorded from the mouth of Nat Turner. Now, William Styron, he took a lot of heat. There were people who were very unsatisfied with his portrayal because William Styron portrayed Nat Turner as being in love with Margaret Whitehead. And if you recall, that is the only woman that Nat Turner, or the only person that Nat Turner says he actually killed. People were not satisfied with this. There's a PBS documentary from 2003, and among the historians interviewed, there was a statement made that it was the fact that black female beauty is something to be celebrated, and to have Nat Turner falling in love with a white woman was not effective in this story. And I think that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, someone taking liberties with with the history, which we don't we don't know specifically exactly what happened, but an interesting point there. And I mean, it was a I I think it it won a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1967. So it was a popular American novel. But like I said, it it took a lot of heat for that portrayal of Nat Turner and Margaret Whitehead. Well, I'm bringing it back to attractiveness or sexuality. A big part of the reason it did is because even today, you know, however many decades we are later, math is not my strong suit, but however many decades we are <laughs> in the aftermath of this, um, it the way that black women compared to white women are portrayed in sexual contexts and romantic contexts are vastly different. So I think that's an important thing to to point out and why it might have gotten as much heat as it did, because, you know, you have this air of innocence and virginity with white women, which you don't get with portrayals of black women classically in media and books and just in the general view of society. Another form of pop culture that we get coming from this story is from author-illustrator Kyle Baker, and he did a graphic novel of The Confessions of Nat Turner. Now, this is pretty much wordless. In fact, I think there aren't any words, and if there are, there's very few. And it's just a visual representation of these stories. And I think it's just so powerful and it's hard to convey in words. I would highly recommend going and trying to find it at your library or even on Amazon and having a look at this because just the artistic representation of what is happening here really adds something that you can't get from spoken and written word. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is available at the Nashville Public Library uh, to rent online. I know because I, I did that. So highly recommend it. Slavery would not legally end in the entirety of the United States until 1865 with the passage of the 13th Amendment. Today marks Juneteenth, a celebration of freedom and the end of slavery. 1865, however, did not mark the end of violence and oppression. And we still march today, 155 years later, to change that. Well, thank you all so much for listening to our second episode, our special Juneteenth episode of the Good Old Days podcast. Jasmine, do you have anything that you'd like to leave 
leave our listeners with? Absolutely. If you're looking to get involved in current events and want somewhere to go from here, I would suggest donating and supporting various causes. Ones that are local to us here in Nashville are the Nashville Bail Fund and Gideon's Army. Also, you can look into organizations like the ACLU, Black Lives Matter, and different places in your area. And if you need suggestions for your particular area of the country or world, please contact us. I am more than happy to suggest organizations. Also, in our show notes, you can find links to those organizations that Jasmine just mentioned. Uh, Just easy access in case you are just itching to donate right after you listen to this episode. Okay, well, we uh, hope that you enjoyed the episode today. If you did, please uh, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us get our name out there. Uh, We are also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Good Old Days Pod. If you have any suggestions for future cases, comments, or questions, please email us at thegoodolddayspod at gmail.com. That is the thegoodolddayspod, all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon now, so if you would like to support us in creating great new content, please head to Patreon slash thegoodolddayspod and uh, sign up. We are in the process of making... Uh, extra content for subscribers. So if you'd like an extra episode each month, a couple of minisodes here and there, please, please support us. Help us out. But thank you all so much. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we will see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.